Welcome, everyone. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the Max Marzo podcast. Thanks for being a friend of the show and you know, supporting it a little bit by tuning in. You guys help my viewership and you help grow this one-of-a-kind podcast. As always, because I do talk a little bit about marketing and some business strategy, if you have a podcast, make sure you don't forget to read in your own advertisement for your own programs. Yes, that is the Always an Athlete Team, a shameless plug to my own program. Always an Athlete Team offers a seven-day free trial. It's on the Train Heroic app. We train six days a week. Upper body, we get strong. Lower body, we get explosive, strong, and athletic. We don't do as much hypertrophy for the lower body work. We save that for the upper body work. I've had people hit first time, hit first time, hit PRs and bench press. We got a couple of people that just passed a week, hit 225 for their first time. Another individual, their goal is 405. We got a wide range. We have people who are 50s and the 40s who are feeling the most athletic they've ever felt, which is really cool, I think. That's pretty neat. They're also hitting PRs, bench press PRs. We're in a bench press cycle bike. <laughs> By the way, in case you haven't noticed, based on all the bench press PRs, we also have some first time dunks as well. People saying they're more athletic than they have been, the most athletic they have been since they played in college hoops. All that stuff is awesome. If you guys want to join the team, join the team. Try it out. Seven-day free trial to the Always an Athlete team. Feel free. If you don't want to, that's okay, too. Or you can try the trial. If you don't like it, don't stick around. No worries. That's why it's a free trial to see if you like it. So let's hop right in. This is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. So I posted a little Q&A kind of dealio on my Instagram and of course, with the Instagram, sometimes these questions are so wild. I wish I could share them all. Sometimes I don't. Maybe someday I will. Um, but I do get some questions that are common or not say redundant in the sense that they have been, they're asking the same thing over and over again, but in this, you know, the fact that these are common questions. So today I'm tackling the topic, by the way, before I go any further of how to select the right exercise and some of the problems that come up with exercise selection and some statistical models we can use to help us pick the right exercise. It is not as boring as it sounds. It's actually kind of cool and exciting. So I just want to use this little tidbit of, a, of an antidote, what came up as a means to talk and kind of, you know, begin our discussion point. So this person said, hey, Max, I got a question for you. And I said, what is that? And they said, well, the question is, why don't, do you train hip? What's your favorite hip flexor exercise? That was the question. And I responded being like, look, I, I don't, I don't really train the hip flexors in isolation. And they said, well, you know, Max, isn't that an exercise? And this is by the way, no being on the person fair question. I said, well, isn't that a muscle that's important for sprinting? It lifts your leg up. It, it sure it is an, an, a muscle that works and sprinting to lift your leg up. Same with like every other muscle in the body. I could point at any lower leg muscle and point out a specific role it has in sprinting. Your glute med stabilizes your hips. Same with your adductors. Your big toe does this. Your soleus does this. Your calf does this. Your hamstring does this. Your glute does this. Your transverse abdominis does this. Your shoulder does that, blah, blah, blah. The point is, if we play the song and dance of this muscle works when you do this, you'll end up pointing at every single muscle. You'll never have a solution as to what exercise you should do. And this is a huge mistake because I think this is something we commonly see on social media or whatever it might be. This exercise is involved in this. Therefore, you should train it. Well, 
Like every exercise is involved in everything. Louis Simmons had a great example. He, uh, I'll get it right. So I don't butcher it. He talked about how if you shook someone's hand and then they shook their hand and he says, shake my hand as hard as you can. All of a sudden you see their neck start to tense up their shoulder, tense up their core braces, their feet get grip the ground. And the point is he was like, look, when you try as hard as you can to do something, you're going to use every muscle you possibly can. So all those muscles are working synergistically to shake someone's hand as hard as they can. Well, when you sprint, all those muscles are working as well. So the question becomes, how do I select which exercise is best? What muscles are best? How do I know what to do? In the world of social media, we just like to commonly point out things arbitrarily, whether it's for clicks or for views or for insight, whatever it might be, educational purpose, because it is educational to point out how this muscle works. But we often leave out a very, very important um, stipula stipulation, caveat, a description regarding it. And that is how important that muscle actually is. So here's an example I have. I'm going to pull up my phone so I don't get lost in my notes. And I'll walk you through it. We're going to take the example of a sprinter here. So imagine we have a sprinter and we're going to try and figure out what the best exercises are for the sprinter. So they say, hmm, I have a sprinter. And you start out by saying, look, list out the specific needs of the sprinter himself. Muscles, movements, and qualities, for example. You might list them all out. You might list some of them out or ones you think that are important. And if our goal is X specific outcome, which is probably to run fast, provide a theoretical value to each need and the role of each need in regards to its influence on the outcome. So how valuable is each variable actually? If you listed out all these variables, list out the specific needs of an athlete, you list out all the muscles at work. So in there, the hip flexors would be in there. The big toe would be in there. The adductors, the glute med, the glutes, your quads. Out of all those muscles, which ones are the primary explainers of running fast, right? Which muscles explain the largest variance of outcome? And what we're doing here is called statistical weighting. And we're going to talk to a data scientist about this in the near future. But I wanted to give you all the example here first coming from me before we dive into this conversation of statistical weighting, statistical framework thinking, and how we can use that to help us make better decisions and be smarter coaches. This is awesome, by the way. This is, really, this is stuff you can apply well beyond outside of training. But I want to walk through here. So statistical weighting, and this is a definition I get off the internet, and I apologize, I don't know where it came from. A weight, in a, sorry, a weight in statistical terms is defined as a coefficient assigned to a number in a computation. For example, when determining an average, to make the numbers effect on the computation reflect its importance. Long story short, and you might not understand that specific jargon of the definition, it's simply a means to say, look, if I'm going to write out a formula, a formula of why someone runs fast, I'm going to list all the variables because all those variables are playing a role. However, not each variable is of equal significance. So imagine if you had the world's strongest big toe or the world's most explosive glutes, quads, and hamstrings. Either of those three. What do you think would be a larger determinant in sprint speed? The world's strongest big toe or someone with the world's most powerful glutes? 
probably the most powerful glutes would play a larger role in your sprint time. Therefore, the glutes have a higher weight, higher weight of significance than that of the big toe. And what's really important about this concept is when we start to outline things like this, we start to understand which key variables explain the outcome to the highest degree. And this is the exact reason why I cannot simply train every muscle in isolation because A, we have a time issue and B, not each muscle is deserving of being trained in isolation. So my guess is explosive glutes will have a larger impact on sprint time because I do not have time to train every single muscle. I may program specific exercises for explosive glutes and not train the big toe in isolation. The glutes have a higher statistical weight on success than that of the big toe or whatever other specific needs you might have. So this is a challenge all strength coaches have to deal with. There is a limited amount of time, a limited amount of resources that the athlete can spend and a limited amount of an adaptation currency, the time they can spend adapting. Do you have to select which movement patterns, which muscles, I guess, which turns out to be which exercise is going to yield the highest return on investment per time and return on investment isn't just which muscle, which exercise and get you quote unquote stronger, but stronger at the right muscles, which explain the largest variance and outcome for performance. They are highly weighted, statistically significant variables. So that's really important to understand. It is so important that it's a universal framework of thinking. It is a framework that involves many different steps we can talk about outside of this. Like, for example, you might have to gather evidence to determine which muscles are most significant. That's where research comes into play. Comes into play. Biomechanics, physiology, what motor qualities are most important? We're not just looking at a movement pattern, but we're looking at how that movement pattern is actually explained. For example, going to the hip flexion thing, lots of people like to train hip flexion in this extremely flexed position, the knee up by the chin, by the chin, up by your waistline in that 90, 90 degree, because that's what they see in sprinting. However, Verkashansky clearly point out, and Zadisorsky as well, that in terms of a special exercise to develop the hip flexors for sprinting, it's not that position that actually matters, that upright 90-90 position. It's the explosive force that got you into that position, and that is from actually a hip-extended position where you're at toe-off and you're driving the hip into flexion, and that initial burst from that lengthened position is the force production that gets you into that upright position. So the greatest amount of load is actually occurring as you overcome inertia at toe-off in that lengthened hip position where you have to go into flexion. It's not holding that upright flexion position. If the goal was to, I guess, sustain a position for as long as possible in that upright position, and that was for some aspect of performance like dance, well, sure, that would make sense to train there and not the lengthened position. But when we look at ballistic movements and we look at cyclic movements, we look at how sprinting works. We have evidence to say, look, that position, that upright 90-90 position that you see actually occurs from this movement back here in this lengthened position. So in our statistical model, 
we look at and say, it's not just about what muscles are working like a hip flexor, but what positions are they in that help get us into the positions that we see in sport? And this is really important. So the idea of, I don't want to go too far down that tangent because I'll bring on the data scientists to talk through this in a great conversation that we're going to have regarding thinking about exercise selection and in terms of statistical weighting. We'll talk about hypothesis development. We'll talk about confidence level interval, th confidence level thinking, um, Bayesian modeling, all these fun things that are frameworks to help you start to think like a data scientist. The goal is not to actually have to crunch and calculate all these specific statistical weights. But if you are aware that these statistical weights exist, you can make better determinations as to what you're going to do. So let me provide you with a non-trained example. Imagine you're making dinner. You're going to make dinner for your significant other. Now, you're going to make dinner intentionally for them. For example, you might be making a pizza. Who doesn't like pizza? Now, you might like pizza one way. You might like, you might be one of those crazy people that love deep dish pizza. You like a lot of marinara sauce on it. I mean, you put on there pizza sauce, marinara sauce, tomato sauce. I'm not even sure you put on pizza. You like a lot of cheese and you like a very heavy pizza. While your significant other might like a thin pizza, they might like vegetable toppings, they might like mushrooms. And so in their eyes, they weight certain variables differently than you weight certain variables in regards to what makes a very tasty pizza. You might put a lot of significance on the sauce, and that's important to you, while they put a lot of significance on the thin crust and how that crust is made. A perfect example of how weighting variables based on a specific outcome and evidence you have gathered, you've been around your significant other, you've talked to them what they like, they like the thin crust because X, Y, and Z, whatever reason, and now you have a model from which you're trying to make a tasty pizza because you might make the most tasty pizza sauce in the world and the world's worst crust, but they only care about the crust. That pizza is going to be dog crap in their eyes. But if you make the world's greatest crust and some very average pizza sauce, and they really don't even care about the pizza sauce on the pizza, well, you made the world's greatest pizza to them because it's not a one-to-one. -one. It's like, look, the pizza to me is a multiplier of, the crust, I should say, is a multiplier of five. So whatever I grade the pizza crust, if it's a 10, it's multiplied by five. So it gets a 50 on the score. I don't even care about the pizza sauce. So it's actually multiplied by one. And so if I, if I give it um, a five and I multiply it by one, it's only 50% of what it could be if it was 10 is the best score. Well, it gets multiplied by one. So the difference between the two pizzas is a 55 because it's 50 for the crust and five for the half, what could be um, pizza sauce versus in a perfect world, if I made a 10 pizza sauce, it'd be 10 plus 50, one's 55 and one is 60. The difference is only five points. Versus obviously if I made a crappy pizza crust, the difference would be magnified even greater. 
So that's what happens when we are doing exercise selection. We have to understand our athlete. We have to understand what they are trying to accomplish, the muscles being used, the movement patterns. And then in our brain, we have to start to form a statistical model as to why these exercises are important. You start to have a hypothesis. Your hypothesis might be in regards to that sprinting example. I believe explosive glutes are important for sprinting. I have these research papers to back it up. Therefore, when I weight certain variables, I'm going to weigh explosive glutes heavier than that of, say, your big toe. I'm just using the big toe as an example. And so when you train, you're training under that model, that hypothesis model that you believe if you have more explosive glutes, you'll be a faster sprinter. And because of that, you have weighted the glutes heavier and you train it in a specific way. If those exercises go up, in theory, your glutes got stronger. And assuming you have skill acquisition being a constant, because we all know that that throws a whole monkey wrench into this situation. Well, then, because uh, sometimes people just can't figure out how to use their muscles because they have just such poor skill acquisition. And that's a whole different topic. That's an issue with physiological application, not physiological potential. We're just going to assume that this person is going to translate their strength, which we all know is a grand assumption, but just deal with it for the sake of example. Then we can assume that that person got faster um, because they had these explosive glutes versus they just worked on their big toe. They wouldn't be as explosive. So I hope that makes sense. I hope that gets you excited to think about how we can use this kind of thinking in regards to thinking like a data scientist and exercise selection, athlete, and so on, because these theoretical frameworks or these mathematical frameworks give us something to operate within and give us a compass on the blue ocean of exercise selection, because you might fall into the world when you become, you are trying to decide what exercise you're going to do, you might just start arbitrarily thinking about all the muscles that are used in a movement. And then you might say, well, all these muscles are used in jumping. Therefore, I'm going to train them all. I'm going to train them all equally because you're not thinking about the levels of um, thought you could go through. That is the framework thinking of statistical modeling to actually select the right exercises. Then you go into evidence as to how that modeling was exist or that uh, weighting was done. What evidence do you have? You have anecdotal, biomechanical, physiological, neurological research paper, all these things can go into it. And that should support your, you know, your mental model that you have made as to why you like a thin crust pizza versus a deep dish pizza. So I hope that makes sense. Um, I do have some time here, so I'm going to give it a break. We're done with the statistical modeling and thinking. And I want to talk about one thing. I want to talk about social media. Um, and I want to talk about, because it's not, it doesn't bother me, but it's, it's interesting to see um, that on social media and information in general that we read, like on Twitter, on TikTok, on Instagram, should be viewed as a spark of interest from which you start to build information from. I think a lot of times, and I'm at fault of this too, we use the social media platform as the answer and not the initiation of something. Oh, you want to acquire knowledge, so you go to social media to hear someone tell you something. But nowadays, it seems like you can go anywhere and find anything of anyone telling you something. Now, my model of thinking, which has really helped me, is I try to listen to what someone might say, and then I mentally try and disprove them. And the reason why I do that 
because A, that person might end up being right. And if they are right, I'll have to come up with a model which I have evidence to agree with them. And if I come up with evidence that disagrees with them, I can think about what evidence am I missing? What evidence might they be missing? But now I have an educated justification for whether or not I agree with the person versus just getting emotional about it, being upset that I don't agree with them, or just being blindly accepting of what they're saying. And this is something I see time and time again, is people get swayed, um, persuaded, is that even a word? Persuaded, swayed, like suede shoes, I guess. Um, no, they get persuaded by purely uh, claims. They say, oh, I've done this, I do that, therefore this is what happens. And that can be a great place to initially th- start oh, this person talked about this diet or this method of training, and I find it to be interesting. And if that person doesn't provide the burden of evidence to support their claims, which is typically how an argument works, if I'm to make a claim, I have the burden of evidence on myself to support that claim, but social media doesn't work that way. I shouldn't just accept it at the level of evidence they have presented it with or greater, I should say, I shouldn't accept it at a level that's greater than the evidence they have presented it with. Therefore, I should try and present my own evidence to look at the argument versus simply accepting their words. That's really important because evidence comes in different layers and different forms. There's anecdotal, there's observational, there's empirical, you can different types of research studies and all these things you can go through. But if we just stop at one level of evidence, and that is someone telling you something, and that something might not come with any other layers of evidence, i.e. resources that you can look at, interpret, and try to critically think about, um, you're not pro- they're not providing whatever, that's okay, because these social media platforms at times don't even allow for that level of detail. It's hard to link research papers. It's hard to provide long-winded captions with character limits. So I'm not necessarily going to say it's the person's burden to provide all the information in the world to try and convince someone, but it's the consumer who should be like, look, at what level should I accept this information? And at what level of evidence have they provided? And is that a level of evidence that I'm willing to accept as something I would justifiably agree with? Or should I use this bit of information as inspiration to begin to dig into this area. And then I, if I have intrigue in that area and I find it interesting, I should then collect evidence so I can be knowledgeable as to the sources as to where my beliefs come from. And that's really important too, because now essentially what we're doing, I I said I wasn't going to talk about stats, but I suppose I am. I'm starting to provide a level of confidence as to my own belief. Like, oh, I'm 60% sure, 70% sure my belief is this. And you might come across new evidence, new research, new methods that pushes your belief in another direction. But having that belief being an open-ended belief as something that you aggregate evidence for and against, and you begin to say, hmm, this is how I think it might work, allows you to A, be flexible in your thought and how you you look at things, but also B allows you to take in evidence or information, I should say, that doesn't have super strong evidence behind it, not necessarily ignore it or get mad at it, but use it to have an initial starting point into your investigation of intrigue if that's an area you find interesting. So I wanted to share that with you all because that's helped me personally to utilize some information on social media 
you know, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram as a way to not say, oh, I'm so confused by all the information out there. But it's kind of like, wow, there's lots of starting points I could go from. But it's a starting point from which I begin to build my own belief, my own specific evidence towards that belief. And I might find out that I actually don't believe it. What they said is correct at all. But now I have evidence as to why I believe what I believe versus simply being dependent on someone else's word. So I hope that makes sense. I wanted to share that with you all here today. I appreciate you all listening. I'm excited to have our guest on here in the future. I should have them this week. We might do a couple of episodes. So we will have a, a little series on this and hopefully have this individual on many times. This person's awesome. They're near and dear to my heart. Um, I'm not going to say who it is, but if you've listened to my podcast in the past, four years ago, we had them on. Very cool person. You know, they're kind of a little bit like myself. So I appreciate you guys as always. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed. Take care and peace out.